Hi everybody and welcome to Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. It's Stephen Burrell here and I'm here with my co-host Sandy Ruxton as always. Hi Sandy. Hi Stephen. So this month marks one year since Sarah Everard was murdered. For those of our listeners who are outside of the UK, Sarah was a 33-year-old woman who was kidnapped, raped and killed by a serving police officer while she was walking home in South London on 3rd of March 2021. And this horrific event was the catalyst for a huge wave of sadness and anger about men's violence against women here in the UK. And it led to widespread calls for change, as well as subsequent campaigns, such as Everyone is Invited, which highlighted the prevalence of sexual violence in schools and other educational settings. So perhaps more than ever, it's led to conversations about the role of men, both in creating the problem and finding some solutions. Yeah, and so we therefore thought it was a really important time to talk more uh, on the podcast about men's violence against women and the role that we as men and boys have to play in ending it. And so to do that, we wanted to speak to our colleague uh, in Durham University's Department of Sociology, Professor Nicole Westmarland. Um, so Nicole is an expert on violence against women and girls, and she's written several books on the subject. Uh, she's a professor of criminology and the director of Durham's Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse. So we've worked together with Nicole on a number of different projects, and she's also played a pivotal role in helping to set up Now and Men, this podcast. So hi, Nicole, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, so with it now now being over a year since Sarah Everard was murdered, and of course she was actually a Durham University alumni as well, wasn't she? And uh, But of course many more women have been killed uh, subsequently here in the UK as well. So yeah, with all of this in mind, what are your kind of reflections uh, on the last year? Like, do you think that uh, things have changed? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, we've seen another moment in time where people become, at least in the short term, more focused and aware of the impacts that violence against women and girls has. I think we've seen a little bit of a broadening out of um, attention in terms of organisations who see this as part of their role to uh, end violence against women and girls. But I don't think, I think we've seen the conversation widen and broaden, but I've not seen anything really that substantial change in terms of creating real protections for violence against women and girls. There was huge opportunities, for example, in the Domestic Abuse Act to um, be able to extend the protections uh, in that to all women and girls, including those with no recourse to public funds. And, you know, we didn't even choose to do that. The very most basic of steps in terms of rights of, of women and girls. So I'm, I'm optimistic in terms of the way that the conversation has gone. But I also feel like we've been there before. You know, Me Too was meant to be that uh, movement that uh, everybody said afterwards. You know, things will never be the same again. We'll never go back. You know, the silence has been broken. The silence is broken again and again and again. But like um, Louise Armstrong says in her in her book about incest, you know, the silence was broken, but we didn't intend to start a long conversation. You know, the silence has been broken around violence against women and girls since the 70s when awareness was raised about it. And we're like 50 years on now. So when is the action going to start would be my question. Mm. Yeah, I mean, do you think that 
there has been been something different this time in that there was seemingly more of a focus on on who's actually doing this violence you know the fact that this is predominantly men's violence and and that there were more conversations there about about men and or perhaps men ourselves having more conversations about it or do you think that there hasn't been enough action there either actually i think the conversations have been broader but again i think mm. the actions haven't necessarily followed mm -hmm. so i think there was very genuine concern but you know women and girls have continued to be killed mm. and i just haven't seen that change and for me until that changes mm -hmm. i'm not sure we can really take anything forward and I, i'm an optimist and i'm not you know i'm not seeing that positivity um you know maybe it is maybe it's the very start but you know we've known about levels of violence against women for 50 years you know how many more people how many more women need to be killed for us to actually create changes and for us to actually start taking violence against women and girls more seriously mm. well hopefully perhaps through this episode perhaps some men who's thinking about this was kind of opened up a bit can perhaps hopefully take some things away from it in terms of what more we can actually do in terms of action as you say i suppose it shows the importance of of actions as well as words doesn't it really um yeah and, and of course as sandy mentioned sarah everard was was murdered by a, a serving police officer in in the metropolitan police and and of course subsequently as well in here in the uk we've seen lots of other cases come to light of of really quite shocking like misogynistic racist conduct uh, from officers in the in the Met and, and other police forces in the UK. And yeah, I was just wondering, do you um, what do you think this tells us, I suppose, about the culture of the police? Or perhaps also does it shine a light on, I suppose, the role of, of workplaces more broadly in in this problem and potentially, you know, that they could be doing more to help tackle it as well? Yeah, I think we have kind of stereotypes about who we expect to be perpetrators and they're racist, they're classist, they're based on a whole range of assumptions about who uses violence uh, and abuse, mm. um, including in interpersonal relationships. And we know that some groups uh, are more likely to report it to the police, for example, than, than others. And I think these kind of stereotypes around what violence is, who are the perpetrators, really gets down into the fabric of organizations so that it's able to kind of see acts of violence and abuse but see the person who's in front of you as something other than a perpetrator of violence and abuse and i think we kind of monstrosize perpetrators so much and we think we'll know them when we see them which means that so often in fact we don't we need to be saying actually if you look at the amount of violence and abuse in society that's happening against women and girls somebody is doing that we need to look more at the fact that perpetrators of violence and abuse are everywhere. They're in our organisations. Um, an example I sometimes give is kind of when we are doing like an ethics application, for example, to do a study about violence and abuse, and we start talking about perpetrators. And um, we, we assume there's more dangers associated in interviewing perpetrators of violence and abuse but actually you know they're going around everywhere in society they're at our school gates they're in the supermarket they're our gps they're our police officers you know they are everywhere in society and we need to kind of understand that they are everywhere and we don't see them as standing out with some kind of you know perpetrator marker on their head and for me, the sheer kind of levels of violence and abuse that are out there 
means that we have to start looking at perpetrators of violence and abuse and how we can start to create change in that sense. So it's a bit of a long answer, but to say that I think organisations need to start from the moment of acceptance that they will have perpetrators of violence and abuse in their organisations. This isn't an if question. They practically all will. And therefore, what, what are we going to do about that? Let's talk a bit about um, what men can do in terms of contributing to uh, responding to some of the issues. I mean, of course, together with colleagues in Sweden and Spain, we recently wrote a book. And just to advertise for ourselves, it's called Men's Activism to End Violence Against Women. And it's published by Policy Press. Um, But I wondered if you'd like to say a little bit about the rationale for doing that uh, research, and perhaps outline some of the findings as well. Yeah, I mean, this kind of stemmed from kind of an interest that I was beginning to get in men as perpetrators of violence and abuse and looking at kind of how men could change through perpetrator intervention services. So that kind of interest in 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 men and change kind of led me to be more interested in how we could get more men on board to join the movement to end violence against women and girls. Um, I know it's kind of a controversial topic within feminism to say that men and boys should be joining us um, in this conversation. But for me, I don't see any alternative, really. Um, I think we see violence against women as a women's problem. And for me, it's not. It's, It's a problem of men and masculinity. And I don't think I don't think it's right that women should have to change masculinities on their own. You know, I think this is something that is about gendered norms, gendered expectations, gendered stereotypes, and we men and women need to be working together to end this. So that was the idea really be behind the book. Um, and, you know, we did interview people. We asked them about their why they became involved, which was, you know, interesting. We knew that for some people, it was the very harms that they'd experienced uh, from men and boys growing up that led them into becoming active in the area of men's violence against women and girls. For example, if they didn't uh, subscribe to the norms of masculinity when they were children, perhaps they were bullied for not being you know, a real boy, for not liking football, for not liking all of these things that we associate with. Uh, with boyhood. Um, So for some men, it was about that. For some men, it was about particularly strong feminist influences in their life. Sometimes their mums had been involved in, you know, helping run refuges. Sometimes it was at university. That was a really kind of key moment, especially for some of the older men who were in the study, who'd been at university in the 70s and 80s and had been really kind of politicized around feminist activism during that time but then there was also another group of men who really hadn't been involved in any form of gender equality any political work any feminist thought until the point came that you know as you know we talked about them being catapulted into this area and this was when something kind of really shook their world for example the 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 killing of uh, their mum their sister female family member and they kind of went from this world where they assumed that you know if something bad was happening that the police would be there and the authorities would be there to to stop it from happening and what they found was not only was there that initial shock of hang on 
this is this something terrible has happened in terms of male violence against to a, a woman that I uh, loved as a family member or, or a partner. It was also that double shock of, hang on, why aren't other people taking this as seriously as I thought that it would be taken? And actually, that's in a way what we see in responses to some women's experiences of violence and abuse as well. You see, first of all, the shock that it's happened to you, but then there's that double shock of, hang on, I was told if I report this to the police, it will be taken seriously. So why has my case been dropped? You know, last year, 1% of all of the rape cases that were reported to the police in England and Wales resulted in a conviction for rape. You know, we've got this kind of double narrative going on that clashes where we tell people violence against women is wrong. You should go to the police, uh, will be treated seriously. And then it's not. And and for me, that's kind of a an institutional gaslighting at a massive level. And the men in our study were shocked by that, just as women are shocked when they try to report rape to the police. Why would something that is such a serious offence not get the response that you're expecting to see, that you've been led and you've been perhaps brought up, uh, depending on the levels of privilege which you've had in your life? Uh, but certainly for kind of white people in the UK, we expect the police to be there to help. And it's it's a major shock when, when they're not. You mentioned earlier that uh, for men to be involved in this area could be quite controversial and, and sure there are them there are contradictions tensions problems when when men are involved in, in the work partly because it's involved men undoing their own power and privilege to some extent so I wondered if you could say a little bit about that and and you know what should men who would like to be involved in this area who feel it's important what should they take into account when they're thinking about being active yeah I mean I suppose it, it's it's an obvious one but I suppose asking questions about how best to support uh, the feminist movement, um, asking where they can best support, what they can do, um, listening, not expecting uh, women feminists to kind of educate them on these topics. There's lots of good books that have been written, uh, lots of good talks out there now on uh, the internet, TED Talks, etc., that are very accessible. So I think what, what, what we kind of don't want to see is somebody kind of coming in and saying, ta-da, I'm here, lay it all out on the table for me to review the facts, you know, like we want them to do their own uh, homework um, and not expect women to necessarily do that work for them and also not necessarily to kind of celebrate them as isn't this wonderful that we've got this man kind of joining us um men do stand out in this work because there are so few of them you know it's still the case that when you go to conferences it's still the majority of the audience are women and actually this is a real gender equality issue you know we need more men involved in this work. Uh, there's lots of areas where we we have predominantly female workforces and we need more men to be involved in this. In fact, the only time I've ever been in my 20 odd years of working in this area, the only time I've ever been to a conference which had more 
men than women was when it was advertised as a as a rape summit for chief officers in the police and that in 20 years is the only time that there's been more men at an event than women and that is even the case when it's events around involving more men uh, in activism it's even the case when we're talking about perpetrators of domestic abuse you know the field of kind of criminal offending crime management offender management it's not all women so why is it when it comes to domestic violence and abuse that again we see this gender split why aren't more men uh, involved and interested in offender management when it comes to domestic violence and abuse for example yeah and there's something there as well isn't there about like uh, if if men are you know still in most positions of power then that is another reason why more men need to be speaking out about this because we can we can make a real difference there and i've seen it even with conferences about about just men and masculinities you know that you'll often still see more women in the audience and i suppose that shows you know do we as men find it difficult and uncomfortable to talk about masculinity and to look at ourselves in that in that way one of the things i found quite surprising about the study was you know the level of activity going on, particularly in Spain, around this. You know, I mean, regular listeners of the podcast will remember that we did an episode um, called Men Marching Against Violence Against Women. And Stephen and I were both at an event in Seville last year with a thousand people, the vast majority men actually, who were taking action on this and being public. Um, and that was quite an eye opener for, for us. Uh, and obviously, there may be controversial elements of that too, you know, about men taking over and some of the things that you were mentioning earlier, Nicole. But um, but you know, it shows that actually more can be done if the will is there. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, uh, Stephen, or, or indeed Nicole. But um, it was eye opener for me, certainly. Yeah, I was just going to say the other eye opener to me was actually the Swedish component when they talked about the impact of the Me Too movement. They talked about having these uh, supper clubs for men where they would talk about kind of instances in their life when they may have uh, used uh, abuse or coercion and talked about kind of strategies to uh, changes that they were going to make in their life to not do use that again as a response to the me too movement and i can remember there was a moment in our team meeting of analysis where uh, the swedish team members kind of said did that happen in the uk too and we were like no <laughs> i mean it was it was unthinkable of wasn't it that this sort of thing would have happened through men as a response to the me too movement in the uk and i think it's just really interesting to see just how different those kind of cultures are in terms of men and masculinities. I mean, it's massive differences to how um, men are kind of operating on a day-to-day -day basis that, that, that that would even be possible or that the marches in Spain would be possible. Because for me, I don't really see either of those two things being possible for us in terms of men in the UK right now. Yeah, and perhaps it shows what more we need to be doing here in the uk not necessarily copying but what can we do more in terms of those real active you know things that that's, that's going on and the value of looking at different countries i suppose as well isn't it and learning and learning from them i mean i suppose one thing as well for me was about how um you know you kind of have the stereotypical idea of sweden as being this like gender equality paradise and stuff but clearly actually in reality it's much more complicated than that even though obviously in some ways things are you know, they are doing well there in certain areas, but actually it seemed like when it comes to men's violence against women, for example, actually it's that isn't still talked about that much, or perhaps, you know, it has 
started to be talked about more in recent years after things like Me Too, but actually there's a long way to go there as well. And actually, I think some of our interviewees talked about how even that can be an obstacle, can't it? This like discourse that we've already got gender equality, therefore we don't need to be doing anything more about this, like the problem's already solved. So so even that could be, I suppose, an obstacle. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in our research on domestic abuse perpetrators with Liz Kelly, we did have a question about whether they um, where they saw the role of, of men in society and, and women in society. And so often men who were using domestic violence and abuse would say that they believe in equality, actually, um, that they feel that women and men should have equal rights, that uh, women should be allowed to do anything that they wanted to do, they should be at work, etc. But then things were different when it came to their partner or ex-partner things were different in their family and they were often in their words just trying to make things better try to make their family perfect trying to do this that and the other but actually it wasn't that they didn't believe in equality in 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 kind of an abstract sense if you see what i mean so yeah mm. i think there's a huge kind of a huge belief that there is equality and in fact also even that some women have it better than better than men um as well yeah that's a really that's a really good point i think yeah that like sometimes for, for men we believe in gender equality in the abstract but then it, when it comes to our own lives putting it into practice is quite a lot more complicated um yeah or, or perhaps even don't even think about how this also does manifest itself in our own lives um, yeah and this is also part of the gendered harms to men and boys as well because I mean if I look back at you know there's, there's that famous photo isn't there of Stuart Hall at a sociology conference uh, running a crash for women to be able to attend the sessions and you know that that wouldn't be seen today it just wouldn't be and part of that is about kind of the depoliticization of the problem of gender-based equality um, part of it maybe is also about advancement of neoliberal universities but part of that is actually because there would be a distrust of men in that situation you know i'll be taking my children to a conference in september and if somebody said to me hey do you want me to look after your children in this room over here i would probably be nervous of that I'd probably still let them go, to be honest, because free childcare is free childcare. But uh, the, the the serious point is there that we are so hugely sceptical about men's ability to look after young children and mm. men's ability not to abuse children. And that's a horrible place to be in, isn't it? Yeah, that's a really great point. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I suppose a little bit connected to that. I mean, uh, in terms of, you know, the kind of gendered vulnerabilities of men, I suppose. Um, I mean, we know that one common, I suppose, defensive response which you get from men when we try to have conversations about violence against women is that, oh, you know, men can be victims as well. Um, but of course, you've actually done some research on this topic. In fact, we've done some together uh, recently, haven't we, about the experiences of male victims of domestic abuse during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, for instance. Um, so yeah, I just want to do you want to say a little bit about uh, anything which you thought particularly interesting, which just come out of that research or your observations more broadly about the experiences of, of male victims and where that fits in these conversations? Yeah, I mean, as you know, we're still kind of thinking through some of this, this work. But for me, it's entirely possible that you can have a feminist approach to understanding male victims of domestic violence and abuse um, and not just when we're talking about same-sex 
violence and abuse, but when we are talking about women who are using violence and abuse. And I know sometimes people say, oh, but, you know, the, the abuse that women uh, perpetrate against men is, is different. It's not this. It's not the other. But in some cases, it is. You know, we saw some men in that study who were being repeatedly put down based on gendered norms and expectations. You know, I think we talked, we called one of our presentations, she told me how I should shave. Um, and that was ultimately about expectations about what he should look like and what he should look like to the outside world and and her control in that. And we saw other expectations that are placed on men around, for example, them being the primary breadwinner, uh, earning enough money to manage the household so that the woman didn't have to go out to work. We saw immigration status being used as a way of abusing uh, men in that study. And what this comes down to, I guess, is power. And this is at the heart, obviously, of most many feminist theories of violence and abuse. It's about power and inequality. And, you know, we know that we know that gender based inequality is one of the aspects which really impacts on experiences of violence and abuse uh, and attempts to seek help. But we also know all of these other things also intersect. So race and ethnicity, immigration status, um, health, mental health, disability, age, uh, parental status, all of these other things are there in that mix and expectations of men and male gender norms are going to come into play if you've got a misuse of power in those other structures as well. And that's what I think we were seeing in, in our study of, of male victims. We were seeing gender being used against them, but because of other power inequalities as well that were were inherent in those relationships. So, you know, violence against women and girls is in, inherently about power and the misuse of power. And the reason why, for me, gender becomes such a important factor is because of the levels of gender-based inequality that we have in society. This obviously started off like as a feminist theory, a feminist idea, and now it's even been adopted by, you know, the United Nations says violence against women and girls is a cause and a consequence of gender based inequality. So you see it kind of looping back uh, on itself and you ending up kind of in in a circle that you've got the gender based inequality, which is affecting rates of, of, of gender based violence. And then it's looping back as well, because that is then impacting on gender based inequality itself. So somewhere it needs to be broken, this kind of loop. Yeah, and, and I suppose the role that, I mean, because it's interesting to think about other forms of violence as well, I think, isn't it? In terms of, you know, like something which is also very prevalent is, you know, men's violence towards other men. And we know that so often, of course, as you say, there's like different forms of, of power and inequality playing a role there. But actually, it's often that is at least partly about gender and masculinity and trying to prove your masculinity and your sense of having power and control over other men and, and trying to achieve some kind of status in, the, in that way, I suppose. So I think, yeah, these kinds of norms and expectations about masculinity play out in lots of different ways in relation to violence and abuse, don't they? Yeah. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, if, if you and I were to walk home in different directions, Stephen, on a night out, actually, if we're talking about physical violence, you know, it's you who would be more likely to be attacked on the street by men than me. But 
if we looked at something like sexual harassment, you know, that is, I would say, almost a weekly occurrence, even for me in my 40s, you know, earlier in my life, it would have been much more frequent. But in terms of if you take all forms of sexual harassment together, um, you know, being shouted at when you're running, um, having men run alongside you to talk to you while you're running, having messages drop into your, you know, your Twitter inbox. Um, if you took all of those forms of kind of harassment, I think it would even now be around once a week, which is, you know, a very different experience i guess to what to what you get Stephen. yeah absolutely i mean it's just not something i have to think about or worry about at all and and i suppose there's also the threat behind it as well isn't it the, it, it from the, the the perspective of the man doing it he might just see it as like some kind of joke or banter or whatever but in, in terms of the woman being subjected to that she has no idea what what the kind of what potential threat is behind that and and also yeah if she's being subjected to that routinely what cumulative impact does that have well i was just thinking i mean you brought up there your own sort of personal experience over many many years and i, I mean i think you know your journey into academia was quite interesting because didn't you start being a, a taxi driver and i can imagine you had some quite interesting experiences around all this stuff at that point as well is that is that right what yeah, was it like being that's a taxi right. driver? Yeah, so um, I mean, I still describe it, even though I'm a professor now, and you know, have advised governments and all sorts on this topic. I still actually describe actually being a taxi controller because I was a taxi controller as well as a driver. But actually, being a taxi controller before the times of um, Google Maps, before the times of mobile phones, was hands down the most difficult job I've ever done in my life so you know we would we would take phone calls during the day we would hand write them literally just on a sheet of lined paper and then the Saturday night would hit and you know we would have 30 cars out and about on the streets of Darlington and you just had an A to Z you just had to know where the cars were there was no flashing cars on a map telling you where the next pickup was or drop off and you had to know where your cars were going. You had to be able to give all of the cars their next job um, over a radio, which only one car could communicate with you at one time, give the jobs out, deal with angry customers on the phone whose taxis were late. <laughs> um, and it was pretty full on. And these were 12 hour shifts. You know, we worked six in the morning till six in the evening or six at night till six uh, the next morning. In fact, on a Sunday, I used to work um, I used to work six in the morning till six at night doing the control room and then I used to work six at night till midnight driving so actually I used to work a straight 18 hour shift every uh, Sunday and actually although it was hard work and <laughs> there was huge amounts of abuse actually I really remember from that time the kindness of some tutors at the Queen Elizabeth Sixth Form College, which I attended um, in Darlington as a mature student. And I remember that time that they knew like what long hours that I was working and they were really kind of flexible with me in terms of you know classes first thing on a Monday morning. I can remember once I was um, ill and a tutor offered to drop me some things off, like if I needed any medication. And I just remember kind of the kindness that was really actually displayed to me through 
the ac academia essentially at that time so it, it was a it was a strange time there was a lot of abuse happening obviously from the customers and also actually this was what my kind of first study was about it was about that both male and female taxi drivers got verbal and physical abuse um, from customers um, but female drivers would get it from their colleagues as well so there was the violence abuse and harassment kind of coming from both angles in terms of many of the women drivers and yeah it was a it was a tough job <laughs> and we would get tested sometimes as well I can remember when I was first starting to drive and we would intentionally get some of the difficult jobs to do so you know something like taking new army recruits back down to Catrick you know that was a good job in that you got a good run out and you got a good amount of money for it and actually if they were sick in your car you always got the money for it to be cleaned because you could see the the officer at the gate so it was a it was a good job in that sense but it was a bad job in terms of the levels of intoxication of the customers and the harassment that you would get there was other jobs where kind of um there was customers who would get so drunk that they couldn't get into their house or their caravan um, in some of the traveller communities in Darlington by themselves. And I, I knew that at points I was being given those jobs to kind of be like, come on then, you think you can make it in a men's world, get that job, have that job, have that job. And there was that kind of thing of having to prove yourself uh, in the in the early days of it. But yeah, it's 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 not something I would want to go back to now. No, and of course, I mean, in more recent times, and perhaps at, at that time as well, there were cases of abuse perpetrated by taxi drivers as well. So the Warboys case in London, which is mm. uh, a well-known case where he, you know, drugged and abused many, many women. So yeah, that stuff's still going on, isn't it? But I'm wondering how you, how did you make that sort of transition from being a taxi driver to being an ac academic? Did you wake up one day and think, you know what, <laughs> I'd like to write about this, I'd like to study this, or, or, or was it, you know, a more gradual yeah. awakening? I mean, I was, I was studying at the time too, I was living by myself and I was trying to um, earn enough money to kind of see my way uh, through university. And there was a couple of other people as well who were taxiing at the time who were also doing this. It was quite a flexible job um, for a student to have actually because when you didn't have a job you could you know catch up on your reading and things like that so it was actually there was actually a few students in fact my sister who went to Durham University uh, she was a taxi driver as well at the time so it was a, a, a job that a few of us were doing while studying but actually what happened was I did my undergraduate dissertation on gendered victimization of taxi drivers comparing men and women taxi drivers experiences of violence and abuse and the reading particularly around that began to freak me out so much that it actually meant that I was struggling I was getting more and more nervous about going to work because I was reading the literature about the possibilities so for example um, I was looking at safety mechanisms that might be possible within taxis and I was reading about taxis in America which would have a, a release mechanism in the boot that you could open the boot from the inside because so many taxi drivers have been bundled into their own boot and trapped in there so I was I was kind of um, worrying myself <laughs> and a bit like when you watch a scary movie or you read <laughs> 
I was beginning to get more and more nervous about the risks of doing this job, which I hadn't necessarily fully thought through when I was in it. Um, uh, because when you're in it, you just deal with it. You just deal with the abuse. But but then, the, you know, in those other times when you're reading, your mind runs away with you. So actually, I decided that I wanted to stop driving. Um, my finals were coming up. I went to Teesside University. Um, I hadn't yet sat my finals and I saw a job that was advertised in Scotland at the University of Stirling interviewing women offenders who were on probation. And um, I applied for that job and somehow got that job. So actually I was working at uh, Stirling University traveling all over Scotland interviewing women offenders in their own homes a lot of the time before I'd actually finished my undergraduate degree but I need you know I couldn't not work I couldn't have not worked for a week I needed to be earning enough income um to pay my bills etc and that in that 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 study of interviewing women offenders I would go and I would ask them, you know, I, as a new criminologist, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, get to understand women's offending and the backgrounds and why they were doing it. And some of the interviews finished really quickly because I would be like, so, you know, what? why did you do it? Obviously, I didn't ask it like that, but, you know, and they would give such a straightforward answer. So, you know, women carrying knives in Glasgow because their partner had been their male partner had been stopped and searched so many times that he said you carry it because you won't get stopped and then she does get stopped women continuing drug businesses on because their partner was in prison women who'd experienced mass uh, massive amounts of sexual and domestic violence and abuse who were then working as sex workers um, to pay for drugs, to deal with the after effects of the abuse that they'd experienced. I interviewed one woman who stole a Kinder Egg. I stole, I interviewed a woman who'd stolen a turkey on Christmas Eve. And for me, there was nowhere to go with these interviews because it was obvious why they'd committed the offence. And, you know, it was, it, it just made sense. And I think it was at the end of that, set of interviews that I decided actually that had kind of got me an accidental step into academia because I needed to earn a living and I didn't want to drive taxis anymore um but actually that that study of women offenders made me really realize that to fully understand women's experiences as offenders you have to go back a few steps and look at their experiences of victimization and most women offenders have had a far more serious offense committed against them as a victim than the one that they are in uh, on probation or in prison for so that 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 really was what started me off hmm. you made me think actually of when uh, I, I worked at one point in the prison reform trust you know a campaigning organization and um, someone you'll know Pat Carlin uh, made a speech at that point calling for the abolition of women's imprisonment and, you know, given what you've just said about kinder eggs and so on, it just seems so absurd that so many women are in for very, very minor crimes like that. But we haven't really seemed to move on very far, even since then. And I'm talking about, you know, mid-1980s, that was that was being called for. So it's disappointing. But maybe moving on in your personal journey, I mean, I'm aware that you, you've actually got two children, two young boys. And I, I'm wondering, you know, how the work that you do impacts on 
how you are as a parent with them and, and how you see their future in terms of gender equality? How does that uh, play out for you? Yeah, I think they have a, a tough time. <laughs> um, they've been taken to a lot of feminist events, you know, I've got photos of uh, certainly my oldest son at, uh, you know, when I was chair, I used to be chair of Rape Crisis England and Wales nationally. And I've got images of him just kind of sat with uh, a tray of snacks and uh, uh, headphones on <laughs> listening to something while you know speeches are going on um i'm a single parent so my husband uh, died when my oldest son who's 11 now he, he died when my son was one and i went on to have a second child by myself using uh, an anonymous donor so um my children are very integrated into my work life because that is the only way that i can do things and have a work life uh, so they've been to a lot of feminist conferences they've heard a lot of feminist speeches <laughs> um and i'd like to think that they're on board and on message um but it's it's hard you know the world that they're living in the world that they're growing up in still has a lot of gendered norms and expectations on children i think things are a little bit changing i see this a little bit at the students who come to university although obviously that's a particular demographic of, of, of young people who come but i i definitely do see some changes happening uh in that generation but it's still very difficult for example for boys and girls to be friends at, at this age as, as children my oldest son really gets on very well with girls um as my husband always did actually he always had a lot of female friends and it's very difficult at that age to make those friendships and it to be accepted as friends so I think they have huge challenges living up to the expectations that I place upon them in terms of gender equality and minimising male gender norms, etc. I think they're very lucky to get to go to all these conferences. And, <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a really powerful point, actually, isn't it, in terms of friendships? Because if, if there's a big issue in terms of men not having kind of a sense of empathy and understanding and solidarity with what women ex are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of violence and harassment and abuse, which then, you know, we need these massive movements like Me Too to even just make men realise what's going on. Like, a big challenge there is if, if men are actually, you know, deterred from even having close friendships and communicating with women and girls about these issues, then that's a real obstacle, I suppose, isn't it? Um, but one thing, one thing I wanted to ask as well, Nicole, um, just because you mentioned earlier about your research project Mirabal with um, about perpetrator programs work with men who have used domestic abuse um, in their relationships to change their behaviour. I was just wondering, like, Presumably, like based on that research or more widely, like, do you think that, you know, do you believe in the potential for men to change, you know, the way the way that we behave, you know, to change these uh, ideas of masculinity, even men who have actually used violence and abuse? You know, do you think that's possible? Have you seen that that happen? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think it's possible for men to choose to change, whether men who attend interventions do choose to change or not obviously is debatable uh, in our research my research with liz kelly we found that some did make steps forward so you know we called our report um steps towards change um suggesting that you know 
this wasn't necessarily that all men who attend in that case domestic violence perpetrator programs will come out the other side a completely changed uh, and different man but we did find that for practically all of the women children and the men themselves who attended a program their lives were better to some extent and that certainly is not to suggest that their lives were perfect that the violence and abuse had stopped in its entirety um but for me the question is if not them then what you know we can't just accept a world where we keep responding to the damage and the harms that have been created by men's violence and just keep supporting the victims one of the kind of turning points for me was when i was doing a, a study in in bristol and uh, I interviewed a women's support group and they were at that time supporting the third victim of um, the same perpetrator that was living in that area. So they'd, you know, they'd, they'd helped two women previously leave this relationship and now they were supporting the third woman. And this was kind of over a 10 year period. Um, and that was one of the the stories that made me think, you know, we can't just keep this revolving door of trying to support women after the harms of men. And I, I think about kind of some of my own experiences and I think about the fact that actually I don't want counselling for those things. I know counselling does help uh, and is important for a lot of um, victim survivors, you know, I'm the vice chair of a rape crisis centre. Obviously, I believe in the power of counselling and support for women. But I also think that actually at the core of that is I wanted the men to change. I wanted that not to have happened in the first place. And for me, we need to hold kind of central and hold on to this kind of strand of supporting women after violence and abuse. But we can't just do that. There has to be something else in terms of actually creating a reduction. And, you know, I, I think I said near the beginning of this interview, I am an optimist and I do believe that we can end a lot of this violence and abuse. I don't believe it's inevitable. I believe men can choose to change. And I think there are things that we need to change in terms of the structures, the structural inequalities and things to help create that change. But ultimately, I do believe it's possible for us to do that yeah. uh, i suppose based on what you've just said you know based on all the research you've done but also your own perspective as a as a woman um like for men who are listening to this podcast what for you are some of the most meaningful things that they can do to help stop this you know to challenge uh men's violence towards women i think there's kind of the things that they can do generally in their lives and think that's things like you know taking um an equal responsibility in terms of um family life in terms of you know not just seeing their job as putting the bins out and uh paying the mortgage and managing the finances but actually around you know who takes kids to kids parties who does that kind of headspace work that uh, takes a lot of the emotional work of running a family. So I think there's kind of day to day things which men can do to increase gender equality and start to reduce gender norms generally. And then there's the specifics. And that is, you know, things like, for example, like 
the White Ribbon UK campaign asks men to um, not to use violence and abuse, but also not to condone the use of violence and abuse in society. I think too often it's women who are having to call out that violence and abuse. It's women who are taking the EDI roles, for example, in organisations. You know, Women's Day is a public holiday in many places in the world, yet in the UK, we celebrate Women's Day by asking them to do even more work to end um, men's violence against women and girls and to, you know, get greater equality. Um, and I just think too much of that work is piled up on the shoulders of women. You know, we're we're doing the women's support work. So can we not have a bit more of a hand in terms of, for example, responding to men as victims, responding to men as perpetrators, responding to gender equality work? You know, can we not have a bit of a hand with some of this? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> totally agree. Uh, thank you. Well, I think that's um, probably all we've got time for today. But thank you so much, Nicole, for, for giving up your time for speaking to us and, and for all of the work you do. Yes, thanks so much, Nicole. That was uh, very powerful. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Well, that was a really kind of interesting and powerful conversation with Nicole, uh, wasn't it, Sandy? What were some of the things which you thought about in that conversation? Well, for me, the first thing that, that you know, just comes to mind is uh, what she had to say about taxis and being a taxi mm. driver. You know, and we just don't hear very much about that. And so that, that, was, that was fascinating, really, just hearing about the sort of minutiae of, of how that all works or worked when at the time when uh, Nicole was doing it. But also, you know, taxi driving is kind of at the front line of some of this stuff when you're mm. talking about violence against women or indeed violence between men as well. Mm. And so, you know, it made me think, God, there's, there's a whole huge research project that needs to be mm. done there, you know, about who gets into taxi driving, what their experience is, how, how does that need to change? Mm. Um, so there's there's lots in that issue. Yeah, because they're getting a real insight into people often at their most vulnerable, I suppose, you know, in terms of the nighttime economy and things like that. As you said, people quite drunk in some cases, for example. Like it must be a very, give you a lot of insights into human behavior. Yeah. So that's that was one area. Um, another one was what she had to say about gender equality more generally you know, and the importance of men thinking about that in their own lives. So not just focusing on violence against women, but the wider context within that, uh, within which that violence sits. And um, I mean, I was amused when she said, uh, yeah, it's not just a matter of taking out the bins. I think she said that. But <laughs> yeah. of course, you know, when you think back to Theresa May and her husband, there were girl boy, mm -hmm. girl jobs and boy jobs, and one of them was taking out the bins, you know, and you think, well, that mm -hmm. is actually quite a simplistic notion of what gender equality is all about, <laughs> as she explained, as um, Nicole explained, yes. um, in what she had to say. So, so I think there's something important there to think about. And the, the final area that I would pick out was about um, friendship, and men's mm -hmm. friendships in particular. And, you know, she was saying in, in relation to her children, how how I think her elder son does have friendships with girls. But, you know, this is perhaps less common. And I was thinking about how that translates through the life course, really, that, um, I mean, yeah, men, you know, men do have friendships with other men, don't get me wrong. But very often, those are based around an activity, you know, going to football, um, going to the pub, playing golf, whatever it is. And actually, you know, I think it's a different quality of engagement that men have often in those environments, you know, and, and 
all male groups have their own sort of um, ways of engaging, if you like, sort of joshing behaviour and so on. And, you know, you sort of wonder about whether there's a sort of emotional content, if you like, Mm. to some of those relationships, which actually, you know, one would like to promote. I mean, I think that's Mm. important. And, you know, we've talked about this, Stephen, before that, you know, you and I, neither of us have huge numbers of of male friends. And there's something Mm. about the work that we do Mm. that that perhaps has led us in that uh, direction. Mm. So... Yeah, that it can be hard to actually maintain friendships with men if you're then going to be talking a lot about things like sexism and misogyny and violence and abuse and stuff like that. Um, but I think you're right. Like, actually, like, I think we as men would benefit a great deal if we had more open, honest, communicative, emotionally engaged relationships with other men. Um, you know, and, and actually, I think that was something which came out of the research we did for the book we talked about, wasn't it? Men's Activism to End Violence Against Women, that... Um, I mean, on the one hand, actually, one of the things I thought was really interesting about that was actually for a lot of the men, you know, we always talk about, you know, men need to talk to other men about this, which, of course, we absolutely do. But interestingly, for a lot of our participants, it was the women in their lives, you know, like their mothers, their friends, their sisters, um, their partners, who had had the biggest impact on them in kind of making them really think about, you know, God, yeah, women are going through this huge thing and we as men are just not doing anything about it really so so I think it is important to recognize actually that that women do have this massive impact on men and perhaps we need to listen to women more but at the same time maybe also there is more that can be done there in terms of us men supporting each other you know instigating conversations about these kinds of issues in a supportive way um, to encourage reflection about it and to encourage action about it and then also for men who are already involved in this kind of work um, to be supporting each other more as well, because perhaps it can at times feel quite isolating, you know, if you are speaking out about these issues and you're, if there aren't many other men doing so. So, so yeah, those men who are, perhaps we could be doing more to reach out to each other, support each other as well. Um, yeah, and just lastly, I, I think I, I agree with the point you made and Nicole made about gender equality, that actually, you know, in terms of what we as men can do, perhaps, you know, one of the most important things goes beyond violence and abuse itself and just goes towards how can we help to build gender equality in our workplace, in our own relationships, in our communities. Um, so, yeah, I think there's lots of important points there, which which Nicole made. I agree, Stephen. Brilliant. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's everything for today. But um, thank you so much, everyone, as always, for listening. Don't be afraid to get in touch with us if you've got questions or suggestions for future episodes at nowandmen at, at gmail.com. Um, do share the podcast with your friends and leave a review uh, on your, your podcast uh, app. And do subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks. Brilliant. Take care. Bye.